Hi everyone, this is Dr. Allo again. If you haven't subscribed to the channel or turned on notifications, please do so. Today I'm giving my uh, diet lecture. This is my second most requested lecture. My, my weight loss lecture is super long and it's all about weight loss. We gloss over the diet studies uh, quickly. Um, this lecture is my second most requested lecture and this one is all about diet. We go in depth about everything uh, with every diet, every single diet research study that's been done. The one thing I'll tell you about when it comes to diet studies is you definitely want to make sure there's some metabolic ward studies in there. You want to make sure they're up to date. You want to make sure they're answering the correct questions. I get a lot of patients ask me, is keto better? Should I do carnivore? Should I do Tom Brady's diet? Should I do a restrictive diet? What should I do? Um, my answer, unless it's something dangerous, is always pick the diet that you can adhere to. If it's something that you like and something you can do for a very long time, please do it. Also, highly recommend taking something called diet breaks, and we cover that in the diet as well. After about 12 weeks of dieting, people get this diet fatigue and they're exhausted from dieting. So we usually have them take about four weeks off, maybe two, two months off. Increase your calories back up to maintenance and You'll gain a few pounds here and there, but then you'll just maintain it. You'll be happy for a while. Then you can go back at it and, and lose a lot, a lot more weight. You don't want to, they found in studies that if somebody loses 70, 80 pounds in a straight shot, um, they gain it all back really, really fast and gain back even more weight. And we'll go over that in the, in the lecture. Now, if you lose the weight in a stepwise approach, you lose 10, 15%, hold steady, another 10, 15%, hold steady, and so on and so forth over the next year or so or give yourself two years even. You didn't put the weight on overnight. It's not gonna come off overnight. Give yourself about two years and you'll be much happier with the result. The weight will come off. Your skin will be all outstretched. It'll be more gradual and you'll actually be able to adhere to the diet more and the long-term success is more. You're more likely to keep the weight off if you did it slowly as opposed to if you did it one straight shot. So. Um, I forgot which city I gave this lecture in, but take a listen to it and enjoy it. Um, if you have any questions, drop them below. I'll be more than happy to answer them in an upcoming uh, video. Thank you for listening. Okay, so Dr. Allo once again. Uh, so this talk is going to be mostly about all of the research we know about diets. Um, this is once again one of my most requested talks. A lot has come out recently within the last five to ten years on diet research, and it's very, very important and very crucial uh, to discuss this in a non-biased fashion. Of course, you got a lot of people online and a lot of people you talk to say they found the greatest diet in the world or they discovered something. Um, we'll go through all of that and find out if any of that is true. First of all, I have no disclosures. Um, no company pays me to say anything. The objectives of this are obviously to review diets and the history of diets over time, mm -hmm. and then ultimately uh, discuss uh, the best diets and which diet, uh, you know, what all the research says about diets, not necessarily the best one, but what all the diets said, what all the research says about different diets. So the everyone I feel like all of my patients and everyone I've ever talked to is always looking for what is that secret to weight loss? They all want to know, Dr. Allo, is there like one secret to weight loss? They see an ad on Facebook or they're scrolling online that says, 
um, click here to lose belly fat or eat this one thing to do this and lose all your weight. You know, unfortunately there's no secret to it. Um, the most important thing is to differentiate a little bit between weight loss and fat loss. When we're talking today about weight loss, we mean fat loss. We don't want you to lose your muscle or bone density or organs. Um, you know, you could lose 30 pounds if you cut off a leg. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about primarily just fat loss. We want to lose fat while retaining as much lean body mass as possible. So just me and my kids, we started uh, working out together. It's a very good habit. Things that you do with your children when they're younger, um, they continue to do as they get older, especially if you develop really good habits with them. Um, this is my youngest child. She saw me with 245 plates on my back. She decided to put two, two and a half pound plates on her back. No children were hurt in the making of this picture. And this is me. Um, in around 2018, I believe, in January, this is the biggest I've ever been. Although if you met me, I don't think I really looked that bad. Um, but clearly I was. And then this is, you know, I lost a ton of weight. So I've done this myself. This isn't just uh, theoretical. I lost about 50 pounds between the two pictures in about six or seven months. There's a lot I would have done differently. And that's kind of why we're doing this talk. So the scope of obesity is really, really huge. About 79% of adults are overweight. 22% um, of adults are considered obese. 16.6% .6 of children are considered uh, overweight. 5.6% are obese. 12% of children two to five years of age are also overweight. So obviously this is a huge problem and we need to fix it. So the problem is with diets is a lot of them fail. 50 to 70% of people regain their weight after one year, 85% within two years, 95% in three years. And looking back at various studies, between 33 and 66% will add back more weight than they lost. Um, however, there is 5% of people who lose weight and actually keep it off uh, for the for the for the next five years, which is which is excellent. So this is the kind of stuff we want to look at: why diets fail and what's the problem. Is it simply a matter of energy intake being too high, which leads to fat stores, or energy expenditure being uh, just too low? Um, sometimes that is the problem, but a, a lot of times there's a lot of hormones and things at play. Now I like to show this called the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, I get a lot of people, or a lot of patients, or a lot of colleagues that come up to me. And they say something like, hey, Dr. Allo, did you see the uh, latest study or the latest book on weight loss? You just got to eat monk fruit or you got to, uh, you know, just walk five miles a day. Or they found that if you take this one pill, you can lose 30 pounds. Um, the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically, your, you know, how confident you are in your knowledge and how competent you are. So a lot of people will read like one study or, or like this graphic shows, they watch one Netflix documentary and suddenly they think they're like an expert on something. You know, I, I watched the game changers or, you know, I watched, uh, this, uh, you know, documentary on how they treat animals, or I watched this, you know, guy talk about how your kidneys are the problem when you're gaining too much weight or it's this hormone. So the problem here is you cannot read uh, one study or one book or, you know, base it on one per one patient's, uh, you know, anecdotal weight loss. You know, he ate just grapes for three months or cabbage or whatever it is. You know, you literally have to look at the entire body of evidence to come up with, uh, you know, the final uh, answer to this, to the diets and the, and the weight loss problem. Um, so, I don't like to brag, but I like to tell you, look, I've literally spent the last 20, maybe 30 years researching weight loss, 
trying almost everything myself and using it on patients. I've read every book that's ever been published on weight loss. The problem is there's like five new ones published every day now. And I've seen every single model and every single explanation and every single diet you can come up with that has tried to explain um, weight gain and weight loss. So almost every research study that you, that has ever been published on weight loss, I've probably read at some point. I'm sure there's lots of new ones. And that's why this research update's important because there's new ones coming out every day. And we know so much more now about diet than we did before. So the most important thing is to look at things called metabolic ward studies. Now, a metabolic ward is exactly what it is. Participants are locked into a ward. They are not allowed to leave. It's like a jail. They drink something called doubly, doubly labeled water. Um, and the reason uh, they drink this, it's a type of water. Um, and if you look at the bottom here, it's a, it's a doubly labeled water technique. Measures total carbon dioxide production by observing the differential rates of elimination of a bolus dose of stable isotope tra tracers, deuterium, and um, a special kind of uh, oxygen. Combined with an estimate, estimate of the respiratory quotient, this yields an estimate of total daily energy expenditure. Um, so when they drink this water and they're fed exact amounts of food and the composition of that food is known, and the composition of their calories and food is very, very, very well known. We know their intake, their output. We can measure how much they urinate, how much uh, stool they create. Um, it's a very, very powerful technique. Um, you can quantify their basic metabolic rate, obviously, like we discussed, their calories in, calories out, total daily energy expenditure, their NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and their EAT, which is uh, exercise activity thermogenesis, as well as um, the amount of energy they use to burn up food. Um, the problem with metabolic ward studies is you can't have too many people in them because you have to pay these people for, I'm going to lock you up into a jail for six months and feed you water, food and water that you might not like. Um, it's kind of like being in jail. So you have to pay these people 20, 50,000 a piece and the, the money and the funding for these kind of things is not uh, always readily available. So metabolic ward studies are the best and we used to use them a lot. In the past, um, they're a little bit trickier to use now, but there are definitely still some of them uh, going on. So I, I highly recommend that you, if there is a metabolic ward study that answers the question that you are asking, that's probably the best study to look at uh, in it for your question. Um, now, we always get this question, diet or exercise. Um, what's the most important for your body composition? Can you lose weight without exercise? Sure. Um, most of your body composition, whether you're losing weight and gaining weight or maintaining your weight, is all diet. Um, this has been proven extensively. You can look at the exercise lecture if you want to take a look at that one. There's There will be an exercise lecture uh, linked below. Now, they did do some uh, studies on this. They did a control group that did nothing. They had calorie restriction, which is this um, greenish blue color. Um, and then they had, uh, they had calorie restriction, which is the orange color. And then the calorie restriction with exercise is this bluish green color. And then a very low calorie diet. Obviously, the very low calorie diet people lost almost 12 kilograms or like 11. Um, the other two groups lost around eight, which is about the same. In fact, the calorie restricted group alone lost more weight, um, about eight and a half kilograms compared to the exercise and calorie restriction group. So you can look at the exercise lecture at a different time. So let's start taking a look at these studies. So the first one, um, homeostatic and non-homeostatic appetite control along the spectrum of physical activity and updated perspective. This one was trying to figure out 
does physical activity or inactivity actually affect your appetite? Like, can we say that if you exert yourself more or you you try uh, to incorporate more activity into your lifestyle, will that actually increase your activity level or not? So I'm not going to read this entire thing to you. You can read it. But the key takeaways are, number one, physical activity does more than just increase total energy expenditure. When activity is low, appetite is dysregulated. So people are not that active. They don't have very good um, appetite awareness, which results in excess food intake and weight gain. Higher levels of activity uh, seem to increase appetite control. So for people who play sports or walk every day or more active, you are a little bit more uh, aware. Your appetite is more accurate. If it's telling you need to eat, then you need to eat. If it's telling you not need to eat, then you don't need to eat. Number two, the combination of being too high in body fat and also being physically inactive may further dysregulate your appetite and satiety signaling, making weight loss efforts even more difficult. So the higher body fat percentage you have, the uh, more difficult it is um, to really get Really know if you're actually hungry or not. Um, satiety signaling and appetite signaling are not uh, very well regulated. You see these very lean people um, or people who have a, had a good body weight. They know when they need to stop eating. They're pretty good at it. People who are quite overweight and obese, um, they they may down you know two to three thousand calories in one sitting and not even know it. Um, that's kind of the problem that we're facing. So the third takeaway was physical activity and exercise may only be effective to a point for the goal of weight loss. Um, at very high levels of physical activity, additional increases may not result in an increase in total energy expenditure, but rather a downregulation of energy expended from other components of total daily energy expenditure and no change in, no change in net expenditure. You can look at the uh, lecture on exercise for more detail on this point, but basically what we're getting at is that if you exercise up to a certain point, it helps. Like if you go for a brief walk every day or, you know, walk a mile a day or do play sports on Saturday or something, that's fine. That will increase your total daily energy expenditure. Um, but if you start doing it every day, like you walk, you know, three, four miles a day, you run 20 miles a week, like these marathoners, um, you start doing too much physical activity, your body uh, down regulates other parts of your uh, energy expenditure, like your NEAT. Um, or, you know, which is your, your, the amount of movement you do that's imperceptible or not purposeful. Um, your body downregulates a lot of that stuff so that um, you're not burning very many more calories and you become more uh, adapted to that amount of activity and your body adapts and figures out a way to not burn that many calories. And here's that point exactly. Your body adapts to exercise to the point where you are burning um, not as many calories as you think or very few. And because you improve your cardiovascular endurance, it does become easier and you can do it using less calories. So if it used to be very hard for you to walk a mile and now it's become easier and easier, you have cardiovascularly adapted to that and become better at it. And that's why it's happening. Um, physical activity, total and regional obesity, dose response considerations. Um, this was done to see whether exercise-induced weight loss was associated with corresponding reductions in total abdominal and visceral fat in a dose-response manner. The conclusion was, um, in response to well-controlled short-term trials, increasing physical activity expressed as energy expended per week is positively related to reductions in total adiposity in a dose-response manner. Although physical activity is associated with reduction in abdominal visceral fat, there is insufficient evidence to determine a dose-response relationship. Um, 
Accordingly, if you read the line that I underlined here, accordingly, short-term studies report reductions in body weight uh, of uh, 0.18 or 0.06 kilograms per week and total fat of 0.21 and 0.06 kilograms per week that are threefold higher than those reported in long-term studies. So if you look at my conclusion, what I wrote at the bottom, the, the key takeaway from this is exercise can cause fat loss short-term at about three months or so, but once you're adapted, um, you no longer cause fat loss. And we see this a lot. I see patients um, and friends of mine, they're like, they take up running and they're like, you know, I'm going to start running. I'm picking up this running program. I joined this running group. They start running. They lose like five, maybe 10, 15 pounds off the bat and they keep it up and they do it for about a year or, you know, eight, nine months or so. And then you, you notice they're back to their starting weight. So your body adapts and recalibrates and um, there's really um, not a significant amount uh, of uh, weight loss from just uh, movement or exercise. And you can look at the exercise lecture for that if you want. So the next question about diet is, do the commercial exercise programs work or do they just cost a lot of money? These are like your, you know, Nutrisystem, Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, um, all these programs that you pay a lot of money for. There's a lot of new ones now, Profile and whatnot. You can, you know, go there, pay, pay for the food or the shakes or whatever they give you. Um, unfortunately, the data on this uh, is terrible. Systematic review uh, highlighted the conclusion here with the exception of one single trial of Weight Watchers, the evidence to support the use of the major commercial and self-help weight loss programs is suboptimal. So if your patients come up to you and say, hey, I want to do um, Jenny Craig or I found this guy, you know, you pay him 20 bucks or, you know, you, you do this program and it shows you this and they, they, they monitor you for a month or two or whatever it is. Unfortunately, the data to support that type of weight loss or those kind of programs is not very good. Um, weight Watchers, and, and just talking to my patients, and I agree with this trial, Weight Watchers does seem to work because they have a support network and you meet once a month or whatever it is. Um, it definitely is a lot more helpful. We definitely need more uh, social support stuff. Um, patients always ask me, do diet supplements work? Um, this is a comparison of traditional and non-traditional weight loss methods, analysis of all the national health and nutrition examination data. They looked at everything that people could possibly eat or consume or, uh, you know, supplements versus acupuncture, whatever it is they found in the conclusion. Um, physicians need to reaffirm that diet and exercise are better methods for weight loss and that all that other stuff, they do not enhance weight loss attempts. Um, very important there. Um, the next study I want to talk about is a very uh, important study. Fat loss depends on energy deficit only independently of the method for weight loss. So this one is a study that was designed to compare the effects of two different but isocaloric fat reduction programs with the same amount of energy deficit. Diet alone or diet combined with aerobic training on body composition, lipid profile, cardiorespiratory fitness, or uh, in non or moderately obese women. So the question they're asking here is if we do diet alone and reduce fat and or add aerobic training, what's the difference going to be? Um, and the key is that it's isocaloric. So if the, the, the one group is eating 1200 calories a day or 2000 calories a day, the other group is eating the same amount. So if you can read the rest of it, but down in the uh, conclusions, the study showed that independently of the method for weight loss, the negative energy balance alone was responsible for weight reduction. So it really didn't matter um, what type of uh, calories these people ate, whether it was higher fat or lower fat, the total caloric intake alone, independent of anything else, whether they did the aerobic training or not, um, definitely is what actually caused 
uh, the weight loss. So this this was a great uh, study. And obviously, their cardiovascular risk factors and markers all improved as well. Um, the next study here is a randomized controlled randomized trial comparing low-fat and low-carbohydrate diets matched for energy and protein. Now, this is huge because I get a lot of patients say, well, I want to try keto or I want to try the carnivore diet or I want to try Atkins or South Beach or whatever iteration of high-protein uh, or high-fat versus uh, low-carbohydrate. Um, the other extreme isn't uh, any better, but but when you look at this study, they wanted to compare uh, this exact question and, and ask this exact answer. Um, our results showed, this is the part I highlighted, our results showed no significant weight loss, lipids, lipid, serum insulin, or glucose differences between the two diets. Lipids were dramatically reduced on both diets with a trend for greater triglyceride reduction on the very low um, carbohydrate diet. Glucose levels were also reduced on both diets with a trend for insulin reduction on the very low calorie diet, a very low carb diet. Compliance was excellent with both studies and side effects were mild, although participants reported more food cravings and bad breath on the very low carb diet and more burping and flatulence on the low fat diet. So if you keep calories the same, it makes no difference if you eat a very low carb or a very low fat diet, you will still lose the same amount of weight. And as we'll see later, you will also improve all of your cardiovascular risk factors if the weight is coming off. The next most important thing that I think is kind of important, um, if you have more muscle, which is why I tell my patients to also weight train, if you have more muscle, it protects you against cardiovascular mortality, uh, against most cancers and a lot of chronic illness. Also, they found that leaner patients with more muscle mass uh, spend less time in the ICU when they're severely ill. So let's talk diet. Not going to do a lot uh, into the history of diets, but you know, back in 1943, they had this like pinwheel uh, circular diet plan here. You know, you can read through it, but it, it was, you know, just drop basically spreading all the groups out into different groups of, I think they had seven different groups there. 1992, they came up with a pyramid um, where, you know, they wanted people to eat mostly wholesome uh, whole grains at the bottom, lots of fruits and vegetables, some lean meats and some dairy. Um, 2005, they changed it to something that was healthier, same basic food groups, but they added a person running up the stairs to encourage activity. Um, 2010, they changed it to my plate, um, which also works if you actually stick to it. Um, the problem, here's all the, 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 the diets that people try to do. There's all these portion control diets, Weight Watchers, Zone, whatever, what have you. Prepared food diets. And there's lots of new ones now, but there's Nutrisystem and Jenny Craig. There's the low-carb, high-protein type diets, the Atkins, the South Beach by Dr. Agaston, who's actually a cardiologist, keto diets, and now you have this carnivore diet. There's all these liquid fad diets. There's the Mediterranean diet, which has been shown to be the most balanced and most proven. There's these kind of like raw food or Paleolithic diets, like back in the caveman days, or if God created it, you can eat it. Um, if God didn't create it and it didn't come out of the ground, then you shouldn't eat it. Um, people have come up with sugar busters or glycemic index type diets. There's intermittent fasting now, and there's all these elimination or very restrictive diets like Whole30 or TB12, which is Tom Brady. I love the guy as a football player, but really probably shouldn't be giving diet advice. And now my con the conclusion that I will tell you, all of these diets can work. Um, 
Almost any diet that a patient first adopts will work for a little bit of time. You can, if you do Weight Watchers for a little bit, it's going to work. You do Atkins, it's going to work. You do a liquid diet, sure, it's going to work. All of these things will work for at least some time. We know that. Almost any new diet or any new adaptation you try to do will work. Um, so don't discourage patients um, if they are trying something and, and, they, and they're seeing results. Say, yes, you know, that's true. You will see some results. Um, but here's why. And then give them obviously good answers and good explanations and try to steer them in a different direction if you can, if it's something super restrictive or a really dangerous diet. Um, here's the next study. Comparison of weight loss diets with different compositions of fat, protein, and carbohydrates. The background to this is the possible advantage for weight loss of a diet that emphasizes protein, fat, or carbohydrates has not been established. And there are few studies that extend beyond one year. So they randomly assigned 811 overweight adults to one of four diets. They targeted, percentage, targeted percentages of energy derived from fat, protein, and carbohydrates, and the four diets were um, varied. Some of them had more of one than the other. I'm not going to read the percentages there. The diets consisted of similar foods and met guidelines for cardiovascular health. The participants were offered group and individual instructional sessions for two years. The primary outcome was the change in body weight after two years in a two-by-two -two factorial comparisons of low-fat versus high-fat and average protein versus high-protein and in the comparison of the highest and lowest carbohydrate contents. So the result, at six months, participants uh, assigned to each diet had lost an average of six kilograms, which represented about 7% of their initial uh, weight. They began to regain weight after 12 months. By two years, weight loss remained similar in those who were assigned to a diet with 15% protein and those assigned to a diet with 25% protein. In those assigned to a diet with 20% fat and those assigned to a diet with 40% fat and in those assigned to diets with 65% carbohydrates and those with 35% carbohydrates. So basically, no matter what you were eating, the amount of weight loss was the same. Among the 80% of participants who completed the trial, the average weight loss was 4 kilograms. 14 to 15% of the participants had a reduction of at least 10 of their initial, at least 10% of their initial body weight. Satiety, hunger, satisfaction with the diet, and attendance at group sessions were similar for all diets. Attendance was strongly associated with weight loss. Obviously, that social accountability is huge. The diets improved lipid-related risk factors and fasting insulin lev levels. This also goes against all those people that say that insulin is what causes us to be fat. If you eat lots of carbs, you release a lot of insulin, and you get very, very fat. That's called the carbohydrate insulin model or the CIM model for weight loss. Clearly, that was not uh, a factor in this at all. So the conclusions is the reduced calorie diets resulting in clinically meaningful weight loss, regardless of which macronutrients they emphasize. This is very, very, very important. Sometimes patients come to me and they want to cut out carbohydrates or they want to cut out fat or they want to cut out protein. When you do that, you're taking out a huge percentage of your calories. Like for example, people come to me and they say they want to do a keto diet. Most people eat about 60 to 70% of their calories from carbohydrates. So when you cut out 60 to 70% of your calories and add in a little extra fat and maybe a little more protein, you are still eat, you literally cut out still like 40 or 50% of your calories. You're going to lose a lot of weight, at least until your body figures it out and adapts and brings you back to your um, starting weight. So this is one of the most important studies we have uh, about this. Regardless of the composition of your calories, you will lose weight if you are in a calorie deficit and a social support structure helps that. That's really, really crucial and really, really important. Um, diet versus combinations of fat, 
protein and carbohydrates. This was from 2009. The specific composition of macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrates in diet isn't important for cardiovascular risk reduction as long as a diet is effective in causing weight loss. And this is something I stress to people all the time. If you are in a calorie deficit and weight is coming off, all of your cardiovascular risk factors improve. I'm a cardiologist. This is my job. If my patients tell me, well, I like eating low fat or I like eating low carb or I like eating whatever, um, as long as weight is actually coming off, your cholesterol is going to go down. Your bad cholesterol is going to go down. Your good cholesterol is going to go up. Your insulin sensitivity improves. Your insulin resistance goes gets gets uh, goes away. You lose adipose tissue around your belly. You lose visceral fat. You reduce your inflammatory markers like your CRP or, or, or all your interleukins. All of that stuff improves your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your diabetes all gets better. Um, so definitely um, this was very important as well. Um, the next study is very low carbohydrate versus an isocaloric high carbohydrate diet in obese rats. So now rat studies aren't that translatable to humans, but they can be. I always like to look at human studies first, um, but this was a study where they compared um, obese rats. The effect of a very low carbohydrate diet, high fat dietary regimen on metabolic syndrome were compared in those of an isocaloric, high carbohydrate, low fat regimen in dietary obese rats. So the key is isocaloric. Whenever you see a study on diet, you want to make sure it's isocaloric. You can't feed one part group of participants 3,000 calories and it's high fat and the other group uh, 1,500 calories and it's low carb. That makes no sense. You have to make it isocaloric and even control for protein like some of the other diets did. When you control for protein, which we'll get to, um, that makes an even bigger difference. So the discussion or the conclusion was when energy intake was matched, the very low uh, carbohydrate, high fat group uh, diet provided no advantage in weight loss or improving those components of the metabolic syndrome induced by dietary obesity and may delay, may delay loss of hepatic and visceral fat as compared with the high carbohydrate, uh, low fat diet. Um, so definitely it seemed like it really made no difference um, as long as weight was coming off. Um, another diet, another study here, no difference in body weight decrease between a low glycemic index and a high glycemic index diet, but reduced uh, LDL cholesterol after a 10-week ad uh, libitum intake of the of low glycemic index diet. So here they tried to answer the question as well, does it matter what the carbs are that you're eating? Low glycemic index foods don't spike your blood sugar. These are like broccoli, spinach, kale. You can eat a ton of it. Your blood sugar is not going to go up. Or high glycemic foods like Pop-Tarts, sugar, donuts, you know, pure white sugar, white bread, potatoes, whatever, beer. Um, which is has the highest glycemic index. They wanted to see, does it matter if these people eat low glycemic index or high glycemic index? So the background or the objective of the study was to investigate the long-term effects of low-fat, high-carb diet with either low glycemic index or high glycemic index on ad libitum. And ad libitum means people are allowed to eat as much as they want ad libitum intake, body weight and composition, as well as risk factors for type 2 diabetes and ischemic heart disease and overweight healthy subjects. It was a 10-week parallel randomized intervention with two matched groups, either the high or low glycemic index. Um, they were given as replacements, um, and they, they studied them obviously very, very closely. Energy intake, mean, um, body weight, and fat mass 
um, decreased over time, but the difference between the groups was not significant. No significant differences were observed between the groups in fasting serum insulin homeostasis model assessment for the for relative insulin resistance, homeostasis model assessment for beta cell function, try try triacylglycerol, non-esterified fatty acid, or HDL cholesterol. However, a 10% decrease in LDL um, and a tendency to a larger decrease in total cholesterol were observed with the consumption of the low glycemic index diet as compared to the high glycemic index diet. So the conclusion was this study does not support the contention that low-fat, high-low-fat, Low glycemic index diets are more beneficial than high glycemic index diets with regard to appetite or body weight regulation. There did seem a little bit less LDL cholesterol, but that over time actually does um, balance itself out. So I'm not too worried about that part. So here, here it is for all those people that say you should eat low glycemic index foods versus high glycemic index foods um, that didn't pan out. There actually um, was a professor at uh, Kansas State University. He's the head of the nutrition department. His his friends saw him at lunchtime eating Twinkies and they made fun of him. They said, hey, you know, his colleagues were asking him, you know, how can you be the head of the nutrition department? You're eating Twinkies. He said, well, you can certainly lose weight on Twinkies. These are highly processed, high glycemic index foods. And they said, no, you can't. And he said, sure, you can. Watch. I'm going to prove it to you. He proceeded to eat 100 grams of protein a day and only Twinkies for the rest of his calories and lost 27 pounds in three months. And, you know, you can look that up. It's called the Twinkie diet. So this is just a graphic. You can find this online. How do these diets create uh, weight loss? So that there's a low-carb, ketogenic, low-fat, intermittent fasting, Weight Watchers, Paleolithic, whatever you want to call it. You can read the description of all these diets, but they create a calorie deficit. If you are in a calorie deficit, regardless of what you call your diet, you will actually lose weight. So it's very, very important. Here's a quick slide on what is the glycemic index and what are considered high or low glycemic index foods. Um, pretty sure most of you know these by now. Um, but definitely just take a look at those. The next study, no effect of a diet with reduced glycemic index on satiety, energy intakes, and body weight in overweight and obese women. Um, so this study was published in uh, not that long ago. I can't remember the date. Um, but it, the objective was to investigate whether a diet with reduced glycemic index has effects on appetite, energy intake, body weight, and composition in overweight and obese females. Um, it was a randomized crossover intervention study, including two consecutive 12-week periods, lower or higher glycemic versions of key carbohydrate-rich foods, breads, breakfast cereals, rice, pasta, and potatoes were provided to subjects to be incorporated into habitual diets in ad libitum quantities, which once again means they can eat as much as they want. Now, this is not always the best because you want it to be isocaloric, but you know we can still learn from this. Foods intended as equivalents to each other were balanced in macronutrient composition, fiber content, and energy density. So they they when they gave them um, the alternative, whether it was higher glycemic or lower glycemic, what they did was they made sure that it was the same amount of calories. So if they gave you a pop tart, they gave you also like two baked potatoes if they switched you, or like you know a bucket of spinach, whatever it is. But they did make sure that when they did give them the replacement foods and they see how much they ate, even though they're eating as much as they want, this is kind of what what they tried to do. 19 overweight and obese women, weight stable with moderate hyperinsulinemia, so they're slightly diabetic or like pre-diabetic, age 35 to 65 with um, body mass index that ranged from 25, which is, you know, just overweight, to 47, which is quite overweight. 
um, and they measured their fasting insulin. Diet, they measured dietary intake, body weight, and composition after each 12-week intervention, subjectively rated appetite and short-term ad libitum energy intake at a snack and lunch meal following fixed lower and higher GI test for breakfast. Um, and their breakfasts were a GI of either 52, which is considered kind of in the moderate range or lower range, and then a 64 um, at the higher range. Not really a huge difference between those glycemic indices. Results, free living diets differed by a GI of 8.4 units, which obviously is not that much. With key foods providing 48% of carbohydrate intake during both periods, there were no differences in energy intake, body weight, or body composition between the treatments on laboratory investigation days. There were no differences in subject ratings of hunger, fullness, or energy intake at the snack or lunch meal. The study provides no evidence to support an effect of reduced GI diet on satiety, energy intake, or body weight in overweight obese women. Claims that the GI of diet per se of, of diet per se may have specific effects on body weight may therefore be misleading. Now, the one thing I would change about this study is I would change the glycemic index uh, differences. Why don't you give them, you know, things that are quite low uh, in in uh, glycemic index like broccoli, asparagus, lettuce, kale, strawberries, apples, blueberries, raspberries, um, instead of uh, making it like really close, a, a glycemic index of 55 versus 64 is really not that different. Um, the problem with that is they'd have to probably eat a whole more volume of food. Can you imagine eating a thousand calories of broccoli? That would probably be a bucket worth uh, of broccoli compared to like, you know, one beer, which has the highest glycemic index. But that here would be a huge difference between 115 glycemic index average versus something like 33. So that would be the only thing I would change about this study. But definitely um, you're looking at a study that, you know, slight differences in GI, but it definitely didn't lead to any significant differences between the two groups. Um, the next study is a ketogenic low-carbohydrate diets have no metabolic advantage over non-ketogenic low-carbohydrate diets. So this study, um, the background information is low-carb diets may promote greater weight loss than does conventional low-fat, high-carb diets. We compared weight loss and biomarker change in adults adhering to a ketogenic low-carb diet or a non-ketogenic low-carb diet. Um, 20 adults, obviously not a huge number, um, were randomly assigned to the uh, keto low-carb diet, 60% of energy as fat, beginning with approximately 5% of energy as carbohydrates, or a non-keto low-carb diet with 30% of energy as fat, approximately 40% of energy as carbs. Um, and during the six-week trial, participants were sedentary and in 24-hour intakes were strictly controlled. So maybe it was a metabolic ward study. Um, it's kind of hard uh, to tell. So what they're basically doing is comparing a ketogenic style low-carb diet versus a non-ketogenic style low-carb diet. Now, if you know, uh, the keto diet is like a super high-fat diet. And in here, they tried to mimic it as much as possible, where they got 60% of their energy as fat. A lot of these keto people get 70, uh, 60, 70% of their energy from fat. So they tried to do this and they wanted to see what happens. Um, so the mean weight loss in, in uh, both groups was 6.3 versus 7.2 kilograms um, in both groups, whether it was keto. In fact, the keto group lost slightly less. Um, and fat loss is 3.4 versus 5.5. Again, the keto group lost slightly less. 
um, and did not differ significant and did not differ significantly by group after week six. Blood beta hydroxybutyrate in the keto dieters was 3.6 times that in the non-keto dieters at week two, which definitely says that they are in ketosis. Um, increased uh, energy expense. Okay, where were we? Um, LDL cholesterol directly correlated with with blood hydroxy uh, beta hydroxybutyrate overall incidence. Where am I? Overall insulin sensitivity and resting energy expenditure increased, and serum gamma-glutamase transferase concentrations decreased in both groups during the six-week trial. So basically, because you're losing weight, your insulin sensitivity and your resting energy expenditure um, improved. Um, your basic metabolic rate went up and your insulin sensitivity improved. So if you were like pre-diabetic, it got better. Um, however, inflammatory risk, arachidonic acid, eicosapotenic uh, acid, and, and acid ratios in plasma, phospholipids, and perceptions of vigor were more adversely affected in the keto group than the non-keto group. So um, basically, you caused inflammation. Uh, people eating that much fat, it caused inflammation. So keto diets, while you know they might be easy to adhere to or people like them, they can increase your inflammation. Um, conclusions, keto low-fat diets and non-keto, I'm sorry, keto low-carb diets and non-keto low-carb diets were equally effective in reducing body weight and insulin resistance, but the keto group was associated with, with several adverse metabolic and emotional effects. The use of ketogenic diets for weight loss was not warranted. So my highlight here, no significant difference in weight loss or insulin resistance, low fetal Low-fat keto caused several adverse metabolic and emotional effects. Obviously, they were hungrier, and their inflammation markers went up. So that's terrible. You don't want that. So the next question I always get from my patients, well, what's the healthiest diet? That's been answered a long time ago, um, many, many years ago, but it's it's basically the Mediterranean diet. If you look at the Mediterranean diet, if you don't know what it is, it's a balanced diet where where we they it's a lot of greens, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruit, um, very lean meats like fish or lean cuts of meat, um, and they use liquid oils like olive oil or you know saf safflower oil. Oils that are low in saturated fat. Then there's not a lot of butter going on, not a lot of coconut oil, none of those saturated fat oils. Um, and because you're eating so much volume of green vegetables, you can't eat a whole lot of calories in there. And it's whole grains too, and beans and legumes and all that stuff, obviously lentils, chickpeas, um, you know, a lot of the, the beans. So because you're eating such a high volume and quantity of food, um, you are actually, uh, you, you are actually reducing the amount of calories. You'd have to, a, a bucket of spinach will fill you up, but it's, it's maybe like eight calories or like 20 at the most. Um, so this, this study here back from 2014 showed, and I'm just highlighted the one part, the Mediterranean diet has been linked to a number of health benefits, including reduced mortality risk and lower incidence of cardiovascular disease. The next study I'm citing here, the Mediterranean diet and cardiovascular disease historical perspective. We already know this was from 2013 and, and they've done this back in 2003 and then many years ago. There's also a significant reduction to high, the part I highlighted in new cancers and overall mortality. So not just cardiovascular mortality, we already have known that, but also it reduced a lot of new cancers. So when you're eating healthy, eating greens, eating vegetables, eating fruits, you know, chickpeas, all those antioxidants, if you consume them in actual food form, it does reduce um, 
cancer mortality as well as cardiovascular mortality and overall mortality, which is excellent. Um, another study here, at a randomized, this is from 2004, a randomized trial comparing low-fat and low-carbohydrate diets matched for energy and protein. Now, this is actually huge. You are matching it for energy and protein. The calories are the same. If one group's eating 2,000 calories, the other one's eating 2,000 calories. Um, if They're all eating 160 grams of protein a day, but we're comparing low-fat to low-carb. So this is tightly, tightly controlled, and this is exactly... Um, the kind of study that we want. So several recent studies have found greater weight loss at six months among participants on very low-carb weight loss diets compared with low-fat weight loss diets. And when they people have talked about this in the past a lot. Well, if you eat low-fat in the first six months, they will lose more weight than the low low um, than the uh, lower. I'm sorry, if you eat low-carb, they they are the ones that usually lose more weight in the first four or five, maybe six months. But then they catch up and they all lost the same amount of weight. So this was trying to prove and see if we matched calories and protein. Is that really true? Because most of these studies were not matched for calories, it is not clear whether these results are caused by decreased energy intake or increased energy expenditure. It is hypothesized that several energy-consuming metabolic pathways are upregulated during a very low uh, carbohydrate diet, leading to increased energy expenditure. The focus of the study was to investigate whether whether when protein and energy are held constant, there's a significant difference in fat and weight loss when fat and carbohydrates are dramatically varied in the diet. The preliminary results presented in this paper are for the first four of six postmenopausal overweight or obese participants who followed in a random order both a very low-carb and a low-fat diet for six weeks. Other outcome measures were serum lipids, glucose, and insulin, as well as dietary compliance and side effects. Our results showed no significant weight loss, lipid, serum, insulin, or glucose differences between the two diets. Lipids were dramatically reduced on both sides, with a trend for greater triglyceride reduction on the very low-carb diet. Glucose levels were also reduced on both sides, with a trend for insulin reduction on the very low-carb diet. Compliance was excellent with both sides, and side effects were mild, although the participants reported more food cravings and bad breath on the very low-carb diet, and more burping and flatulence on the low-fat diet. So here's another study. It's very well done. Obviously, not a whole lot of participants, but they looked at this very closely. They matched protein and they matched carbohydrates, which is the most important factor you want to look at. I'm sorry, they matched calories, not, not carbohydrates. They matched protein and they matched calories. Boom, you've got the same exact amount of weight loss and all of their cardiovascular markers pretty much improved minus the weird uh, side effects with the taste in the mouth and the hunger cravings. And, and, and that's actually huge, the hunger cravings. A lot of my keto patients and friends, they're, they're hungry like all the time. They, they've got these cravings and then they just go eat a bunch of butter or coconut oil or a steak or whatever it is. And then they're over on calories and then their weight goes up. And that's kind of the problem with these diets. People think you can eat as much as you want. They start eating tons and tons of calories, but it's keto. Um, and then they don't understand why they the weight loss stopped or they start gaining weight back. So this is changes in weight loss, body composition, cardiovascular disease risk after altering mac macronutrient distributions during a regular exercise program in obese women. This study's purpose investigated the impact of different macronutrient distributions on and varying caloric intakes along with regular exercise for metabolic and physiological changes related to weight loss. So they had 140 sedentary obese women um, were randomized to either no diet plus no exercise, which was a control group, a no diet plus exercise 
group. So they had somebody doing nothing, somebody doing just exercise with no diet, or one of four diet plus exercise groups. They had a high energy diet, a very low carbohydrate diet, a high protein diet, um, low carbohydrate, moderate protein diet, and a high carbohydrate, low protein diet. So here they wanted to look at does varying the carbs and or protein and or fat really make a difference? That's kind of what it go. That's kind of what they're hinting at. In addition to beginning a three times a week supervised resistance training program, this is huge that it was supervised. They had to come in and be forced to exercise. After 0, 1, 10, and 14 weeks, all participants completed the testing sessions, which included anthropometric body composition, energy expenditure, fasting, blood samples, aerobic and muscular fitness assessments. Data were analyzed using repeated measures, ANOVA with an alpha of 0.05 with LSD post hoc analysis when appropriate. The results. All dieting groups exhibited adequate compliance to their prescribed diet regimen as energy and macronutrient amounts and distributions were close to prescribed amounts. So what they're saying here is basically the groups stuck to their macronutrients that they were assigned. Those groups that followed a diet and exercise program reported significantly greater uh, anthropometric uh, and body composition via DEXA changes. So their waist circumference and body mass improved, as well as the DEXA scan can give you body fat percentage. Caloric restriction initially reduced energy expenditure, but successfully returned to baseline values after 10 weeks of dieting and exercising. Um, significant fitness improvements, aerobic capacity, maximal strength occurred in all exercising groups. No significant changes occurred in lipid panel constituents, but serum insulin and HOMA IR values decreased in the very low carb uh, high protein group, um, which we've seen that a lot uh, in a lot of these studies. Significant reductions in serum leptin occurred in all caloric restrictions, and the, the leptin and ghrelin are what control your appetite, tell you whether you're hungry or not. The less fat you have, the less leptin you secrete, and the less hungry your body feels. Um, where was I? Leptin occurred in all caloric restriction plus exercise groups after 14 weeks, which were unchanged in other non-diet and non-exercise groups. So as long as the weight was coming off, almost everything improved. Um, conclusions overall and over the entire test period, all diet groups which restricted their caloric intake and exercise experienced similar responses to each other. Regular exercise and modest caloric restriction successfully promoted anthropometric and body composition improvements along with various markers of muscular fitness. So they all lost waist size, and they all lost body fat percentage. Significant increase in relative energy expenditure and reductions in circulating leptin were found in response to all exercise and diet groups. Macronutrient distribution may impact circulating levels of insulin slightly and overall ability to improve strength levels in obese women who follow regular exercise. My highlight at the bottom, regardless of what macronutrient breakdown you use, if you are losing weight, all of your cardiovascular risk factors improve. Now, these very low Carb diets definitely affect your um, circulating insulin and sensitivity slightly, but as time goes on, we found that that all evens out. Another cardiovascular risk, a lot of my patients come up to me and they say, well, Dr. Allo, can I eat red meat? I eat it like once a week. Is that okay? So this question has been answered. Obviously, you don't want to be eating tons and tons of red meat and saturated fat, but we know that if you're um, leaner and you're not 
uh, and you're not overweight, you can actually get away with eating a little bit more saturated fat so or red meat. Here's a study from 2017, dietary red and processed meat intake and markers of adiposity and inflammation, the multi-ethnic cohort study. Um, the objective, the potential influence of dietary factors on inflammation is important for cancer prevention. Utilizing data from control participants, 310, 312 men, 911 women, in two nested case control studies of cancer within the multi-ethnic cohort, we examine the association of red and processed meat intake with serum levels of leptin, adiponectin, C-reactive protein, tumor necrosis factor, and interleukin-6, and the mediator effect of body mass index on the above associations if present. So they kind of go through and explain what they did. The result, overall red and processed meat intake was positively associated with serum leptin levels in men and women. In women, higher red and processed meat consumption was significantly associated with higher CRP and lower adiponectin levels. So women are a little more sensitive to red meat intake than men. In mediation analysis with red and processed meat intake and BMI as predictors, the association of red and processed meat with biomarkers decreased substantially as indicated by percentage uh, change in effect. Leptin in men and leptin in women about the same, adiponectin in women, um, CRP in women, and were no longer significant, whereas BMI remained significantly associated with serum leptin um, for men and women, adiponectin, and CRP. So the conclusion that they drew, the current data suggests that the amount of excess body weight or the degree of adiposity, and adiposity just means like adipose tissue or fat tissue, how, how fat you are basically, may mediate the relations between dietary red and processed meat and intake and serum biomarkers associated with obesity and inflammation. So the more obese you are, um, the more diet and the kinds of foods and macronutrients you eat makes a difference. And we've been telling this to people for quite some time that if you're pretty lean and you don't smoke and, and you know, you're quite, you know, active, you could eat red meat and it'll be fine. But if you're a smoker and you're obese and hypertensive and diabetic, then you really got to cut that stuff out because it also can increase cancer, not just cardiovascular disease. So my little highlight at the bottom, if you are overweight, the amount of red meat and saturated fat will affect your cardiovascular risk. Um, another study here, Effects of total red meat intake on glycemic control and inflammatory biomarkers, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. Um, this is, uh, well, here's the abstract. Our objective was to conduct a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess the effects of total red meat uh, intake on glycemic control and inflammatory biomarkers using randomized controlled trials of individuals free from cardiometabolic disease. We hypothesize that a higher total red meat intake would negatively influence glycemic control and inflammation based on positive correlations between total red meat intake and diabetes. We found 24 eligible articles. I'm not going to go through that part, um, but if you want to, let me get to their conclusions here. We grouped diet periods to explore heterogeneity, heterogeneity sources, including risk of bias, the National Heart Institutes. Let me get to kind of where they get to the conclusions. There was no difference in change values between diet periods um, with greater versus zero, with greater than or less than 0 0.5 servings per day of total red meat, weighted mean differences, um, the glucose, the insulin, and the HOMA IR, CRP, um, and no dose response relationship. Risk of bias, 85% of studies were fair to good, did not influence the results. Total red meat consumption for up to 16 weeks does not affect 
changes in biomarkers of glycemic control or inflammation for adults, free or, ad or for adults free of but at risk for cardiometabolic disease. The trial was registered. Blah blah blah. So this is like a review of all the. It's a meta-analysis, which means like they looked at a lot of studies and came up with some good ones um, to look at to see if the intake of red meat mattered. So my conclusion that I put down here for you guys, a cohort study examined the relationship between uh, red meat, BMI, and inflammatory markers. And these are inflammatory markers are quite common in about 1,223 subjects total when they, when they did all these, uh, when they got these articles all, you know, fared out. They did indeed find that red meat intake was associated with markers of inflammation. However, when they corrected for the differences in BMI, the associations between red meat and inflammatory markers were no longer significant, while the association between BMI and inflammation were. So once again, another study showing that if you are overweight, then red meat is probably not for you. Or if you're diabetic, then red meat is probably not for you. Um, if you're pretty lean and, and fit and active and carry a lot of muscle mass, then red meat is probably not a problem for you. Another study, meat consumption, and this is brand new. I mean, this is right now, this year, 2021, not even in February, uh, in the uh, British Medical Medical uh, Journal or Council. Um, meat consumption and risk of 25 common conditions, outcome-wide analysis in almost 400,000 500,000 men and women in the UK biobank study. The background here, there's limited perspective evidence on the association between meat consumption and many common non-cancerous health outcomes because we do know that you know certain amount of meats can increase cancers, although once again, if you correct for BMI, that might not be the issue. They examine the associations here of meat intake with a risk of 25 common conditions. We use data from 474,985 middle-aged adults recruited into the UK Biobank study between 2006 and 2010 and followed up until 2017. The mean follow-up was eight years with available information on meat intake at baseline collected via touchscreen questionnaire. Now, that's not always the most accurate, but if they're filling it out right then and there, that's good. But these recall studies where you ask somebody, what did you eat 20, 30 years ago? Not that accurate and linked hospital admissions and mortality data. For a large subsample, uh, dietary intakes were remeasured three or more times using an online 24-hour recall questionnaire. So good. So for a good amount of the patients that were in this biobank, they did actually go back and ask them, what did you eat in the last 24 hours? So it wasn't like, you know, something from eight years ago or back at baseline, which is excellent. On average, uh, participants who reported consuming meat regularly three or more times per week had more adverse health behaviors and characteristics than participants who consume meat less regularly. And most of the positive associations observed for meat consumption and health risks were substantially attenuated, means they got worse, at, I'm sorry, which means they got better after adjustment for body mass index. A multivariable adjusted uh, Cox regression model corrected for multiple testing Higher consumption of unprocessed red and processed meat combined was associated with higher risk of ischemic heart disease. Uh, higher, uh, where are we? Uh, pneumonia, diverticular disease, colon polyps, and diabetes. Results were similar for unprocessed red meat and processed meat intake separately. Higher consumption of unprocessed red meat alone was associated with a lower risk of iron deficiency anemia. Obviously, meat is very dense in iron and is very absorbable. It's the most uh, absorbable and readily available type of iron, more so than iron pills or anything else. Higher poultry meat intake was associated with higher risk of gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, 
and gastritis, duodenitis, diverticular disease, gallbladder disease, and diabetes. Their conclusions, higher unprocessed red meat, processed meat, and poultry meat consumption was associated with higher risk of several common conditions. Higher BMI accounted for a substantial proportion of these increased risks that residual that residual confounding or mediation by adiposity might account for some of these remaining associations. Higher unprocessed red meat and poultry meat consumption was associated with lower IDA risk. Um, so this is huge, once again, showing that if you correct, and IDA is iron deficiency anemia, if you correct for BMI and people are at a lower body weight, they're less likely to have all of these conditions, not just the diabetes and cardiovascular disease, but they found diverticular disease and all kinds of stuff. Um, so very, very important study as well. This is brand new from this year, 2021. Once again, try to stay lean um, and have a higher muscle mass and, and less adipose tissue, and that'll help you. Uh, you can get away with a little bit more uh, being a little looser with your red meat intake or saturated fat intake. Another study here, um, long-term weight maintenance and cardiovascular risk factors are not different following weight loss on carbohydrate-restricted diets high in either monosaturated fat or protein in obese hyperinsulinemic men and women. Um, so the aim of this study was to determine after 52 weeks whether advice to follow a low-carb diet, either high in monounsaturated uh, fat or low fat, high in protein, had differential effects in a free-living community setting. So um, what they're trying to do is to see if, if somebody followed a low-carb diet um, that was high in protein, whether eating monounsaturated fat or low fat, um, high in monounsaturated fat or lower in fat uh, made that much of a difference. So following weight loss on either a high monounsaturated fat diet, standard protein, uh, standard protein diet, um, which you can look up the percentages there, but it's basically 50% um, and 20% uh, protein. Um, or high protein, moderate fat, which is 40% protein and 30% fat and 30% carbs. Energy restricted diet, which was 6,000 kilojoules per day. Yeah, so that translates into about 1,450 uh, calories. So it is calorie restricted. Um, so the subjects were asked to maintain the same dietary pattern without intensive dietary counseling for the following 36 weeks. So without the different the counseling that makes it a little hard, but it seems like they tried their best. Overall weight loss was 6.2 kilograms, uh, 7.6, uh, and 4.8. In a multivariate regression, the model predictors of weight loss at the end of the study were sex, age, and reported percentage energy from protein. Um, fasting plasma insulin decreased with no difference between the diets, um, but fasting plasma glucose was not reduced. Neither total cholesterol nor LDL cholesterol were different, but HDL was higher while triacylglycerides, so triglycerides was lower. C-reactive protein decreased uh, as well in pretty much all, all of the groups. Food records showed that compliance to the prescribed dietary patterns was poor. So clearly, you let people loose and you don't counsel them for 36 weeks. They may not have stuck to that very well. After one year, there remained a clinically significant weight loss and improvement in cardiovascular risk factors with no adverse effect of high monosaturated, monounsaturated fat diet. So regardless of um, which diet they ate, whether it was high in monounsaturated fat or just low fat or high in protein, 
Um, there really was no difference, although they didn't stick to the diet as close as we'd like, but there really was no difference in the um, cardiovascular risk factors, although the group that ate more protein, it seemed, had better weight loss, and, and we know that um, over time uh, quite a bit. So if we had to conclude everything we know about cardiovascular risk and all these diets, obesity and LVA BMI increase all inflammatory markers and cardiovascular disease risk factors. Calorie deficit and weight loss improve all cardiovascular risk factors. So if you are losing weight, everything will get better. Macronutrient breakdown makes no difference. So whether you're eating more protein, more fat, more carbs, the, if the weight is coming off, your cardiovascular uh, factors improve. Now, the more protein you eat, the more the less hunger you feel, and it actually does help improve weight loss. Leaner individuals have less cardiovascular risk and can get away with more. They can eat a little bit more red meat than everyone else, or or saturated fat. You know, whether it's in turkey or chicken or whatever other types of meat. Protein very important to protect lean body mass, satiety, and cause fat loss. So if you are going to diet, regardless of how you want to diet, make sure you're getting enough protein. Um, we'll get into that later, but this improves satiety um, and um, helps protect you from losing lean mass and will actually cause fat loss. So yo-yo dieting is horrible. We've, we've gone through this a lot. There was a study back in 1950s when you semi-starve a group of people, they lose lean body mass, which is this bluish green line, or this blue line, let's say, and they lose a lot of fat, which is this green line. Then you let them refeed or eat as they want. You gain back most of your lean body mass, but you start eating, overeating and you gain back a lot of fat. And that's usually the problem when people are restricted. Now, I think I've gone through this before. When you go on a diet, you count your calories, you reduce your metabolic rate, your lean body mass goes down, your fat body mass goes down, you get pretty lean. If you start eating a lot, all this stuff kind of goes back up. Um, the diet after the diet is more important. Um, here's another kind of model. When you first lose weight, you lose it at one times the rate. You regain it at two times the rate. The next time around you try to diet, you lose it at half the rate, and then you regain it back at three times the rate. So it's very, very important, going back to that yo-yo dieting thing, don't yo-yo diet. Your body becomes very, very, very good at storing fat. It sees that you lose a bunch of weight and then gain a bunch of weight, then lose a bunch of weight, then gain a bunch of weight. It becomes like a fat storing machine. You definitely don't want to do that. So why do diets fail? There's a lot of reasons. Um, people don't want to count calories. I have a lot of patients that just say, this is just too much. I just don't want to count calories. Some of them are expensive if you have to pay for them or buy them. Um, they're difficult to follow. They're too extreme. Some of them are unhealthy. Um, imagine eating just cabbage or just water for two months. Somebody actually, I actually had a patient recently call me, well, uh, message me or see, you know, I saw him somewhere and he asked me, can I eat, drink just water for three months? I said, yes, you could do whatever you want, but you might die. I mean, you, you, what is the purpose of this? Why do you want to do this instead of eating just water for two months? Well, why don't you just restrict your calories or, or find something else that's just really unhealthy and you could actually die from something like this. Sometimes a diet is not a good not a good fit for you. Let's say you like donuts and like Pop-Tarts or let's say Twinkies like the professor, but you uh, want to try a keto diet or a carnivore diet. That's not going to work for you. You like carbs and you need carbs for whatever you like. You know, say you're an endurance athlete or you lift weights, you need carbs, but you you don't, you're going to try to restrict them. That's really hard to do. The other issue is fighting against your set point. Uh, 
Um, your body likes to maintain the same body weight. Um, it, you know, it wants to keep you at 170 pounds. If you gain weight too fast or lose weight too fast, it's going to try to keep you there. Um, another reason diets feels people lose interest after they plateau and their body adapts. So your body likes to adapt to your calories so that it stops losing weight or gaining weight. Um, the other issue is calories are too low. You can't take a 300 pound person and say, Hey, we're going to put you on 1200 calories. You're going to lose a lot of weight. Okay. Let's say they start losing weight and now they're stuck at 1200 calories and, and they only lost 20 pounds. Now they're 280. What do you do now? You can't really lower their calories much more because they're already at 1200. That's really low for a 300 pound person. So you definitely don't want to do that. You want to lower their calories just enough to trigger weight loss. Um, this is Dr. George Blackburn out of Harvard. He said he spent 35 years studying obesity and weight loss and spent four years writing this book. He talks about his the set point. Uh, I kind of like his book. Um, he's, he's a Harvard physician. He said that, that you want to, if you, your body's always going to try to bring you back to your original weight. You want to lose about 10% of your weight slowly and hold steady for six months. That way your body, um, gets back. That way your body resets to this new weight. So let's say you drop 20 pounds, you're 180 pounds. Now, if you stayed 180 pounds for six months, your body now thinks that's your new weight that it has to defend. He's also the original inventor of these slim fast shakes. There was an experiment in 1964 called the Vermont prison experiment. Thankfully, we can't do experiments on prisoners or inmates anymore. They divided them into two groups. They overfed one group and underfed another group for a few months and then let, let, let them alone. Um, they all either lost or gained weight, depending on whether they were calorie restricted or overfed. And they all went back to their original weights when they were just left alone to eat ad libitum. Um, the Minnesota Starvation Study, Dr. Ansel Keys, um, took Hollywood stars and wanted them to lose a lot of weight really, really quickly for like a movie or for whatever it was. They did it, um, but the body rebels and they all regained their weight and more uh, pretty quickly. And they were very, very miserable. That's kind of where the word hangry comes from. So the keys to fat loss, this is the part that you probably wanted to hear the most. Keep your calories as high as possible while still in a deficit. So if you normally eat 4,000 calories a day, you drop them to 3,300 and you're losing weight, stay there. If your weight's coming off, just stay at 3,300. Why would you want to drop it to 2,400 and not eat as much food? So definitely keep your calories as high as humanly possible while still causing weight loss. Um, the next uh, bullet point, slow maintained weight loss uh, will protect lean mass better. The slower you go, the better. So if you lose a bunch of weight really quickly, you're going to lose a lot of muscle. If you slowly lose weight over time and just take your time doing it, incorporate refeeds, um, you won't lose as much muscle. Huge, huge, and very important. Don't lower fat too much. Um, some people are like, well, I'm only going to eat 20 grams of fat a day or 30 grams or 40 grams, whatever it is. You don't do that. You, it'll lower your testosterone and other hormones that are important for, for actual weight loss. You need testosterone and you need, um, cholesterol and a lot of your hormones that you need. So keep it something reasonable under a hundred is fine, but it's 50 to 70, depending on if you're a male or a female, you know, as low as 40 is probably okay too, depending on how small you are to start with. Don't crash diet, obviously. You don't want to lose 30 pounds in one month. Sure, there's ways to do that. It's very unhealthy and you'll just regain it back. The faster you lose it, the faster you gain it back. You definitely want to be in a calorie deficit. This is the most important thing. All those diets that we listed all cause a calorie deficit and that's what you need. You want to keep protein high. Um, we'll get into the details, but keep your protein high because it it'll cause fat loss and it'll help you protect your muscle mass. If you can strength train, do that and strength train hard because if you're dieting and in a calorie deficit, you want to send a signal to your body that you need your muscles 
and for your body not to get rid of muscle because muscle is is inefficient for your body to keep if you're trying to lose weight. Refeeds is like a whole other topic, but every once in a while, if you're um, if you're really exhausted from and this goes for diet breaks too, but if you're really exhausted from dieting, take a couple of days off. If you if you're eating 1,800 calories a day all week and you know it's the tenth day and you're kind of tired, increase your calories back up to maintenance. Go up to 22, 2300. Eat for two or three days and then get back on your diet. Diet breaks are much longer. If you've been on a diet for 12 weeks, um, you want to do a diet break where you increase your calories back up to maintenance level for for about two months or about two thirds of the diet break. Um, now, because long prolonged diets cause fatigue, there's something called diet fatigue. You're exhausted, you're tired, you're mentally not there. You wanna eat food, you wanna enjoy yourself a little. So take a diet break, increase your calories back up to maintenance for a month or two, you'll feel better. You will gain initially a few pounds here and there, four or five pounds, and then just wait till you feel good. You you look good. You got your energy back. Your hormones are all rebalanced, and then go back and start uh, dieting again. Um, this is a study that proves some of this. The intermittent energy restriction improves weight loss efficiency in obese men. The Matador study. The Matador study. Um, is called minimizing adaptive thermogenesis and deactivating obesity rebound. This study examined whether intermittent energy restriction improved weight loss efficiency compared with continuous energy restriction, and if so, whether intermittent energy restriction attenuated compensatory responses associated with energy restriction. So here they want to see, does taking a diet break help? So kind of like how we talked about refeeds um, and diet breaks. This is kind of what this, this study does. I highlight the conclusion. Greater weight and fat loss was achieved with the intermittent energy restriction group. Interrupting energy restriction with energy balance rest periods may reduce compensatory metabolic responses and in turn improve weight loss efficiency. So that metabolic adaptation that we talked about, where your body adapts to lower and lower calories, that sort of goes away if you take these breaks. Um, here's kind of the key points of the study. Despite the same energy deficit and same total time spent in an energy deficit, a group um, taking two-week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting lost 50% more fat mass compared to a group dieting continuously for 16 weeks. However, due to the frequency of these breaks, the group performing diet breaks required 30 weeks to complete all 16 weeks of dieting. I mean, obviously, um, it's going to take a little bit longer if you keep taking breaks every two weeks. But, but either way, it, it definitely worked. Additionally, resting energy expenditure dropped only half as much in the diet break group compared to the continuous diet group when adjusted for body composition. This may be why the difference in groups favored the diet break group to a greater degree after a six-month follow-up, indicating diet breaks may help with the maintenance of weight loss after a diet concludes. So if you take breaks, your basic metabolic rate or your total energy expenditure does not go down as much either. Um, which is which is huge. So even six months later, the resting basic metabolic rate for the people who took diet breaks was higher. So this is excellent and will help you with weight loss. Diet breaks appear to reverse important physiological adaptations to an energy deficit, subsequently making the dining period following a break more effective for fat loss. So if you take breaks from this diet and the diet fatigue and this you know excruciating diet that you might be doing, you'll end up losing more weight uh, overall. 
While increasing the time required to complete a, a diet as much as we as was done in this study is probably impractical, performing a dry break every four to eight weeks versus every two weeks may be a useful strategy for physique competitors and weight loss class restricted strength athletes to enhance fat loss and mitigate declines in resting energy expenditure. So what we normally recommend, and now the study sort of proves it, but we've always recommended diet for 12 weeks, take the next four to eight weeks at maintenance and then start doing it again if you want um, but this mitigates or attenuates some what we call metabolic adaptation which is your body's ability to stop you from losing weight and lower your basic metabolic rate so that you don't lose as much weight anymore here are some uh reasons and 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 why people are able to maintain weight loss so they looked at people who lost weight and kept it off for five years this is the five factors that seem to help that the most. And you can, you know, this could be a, a topic on its own. I think this talk has gone on uh, long enough. Um, but but stuff like this, and you can click on the links down there and read them. But you have to have some kind of cognitive restraint, which whether that's calorie counting or intermittent fasting or not eating as much as you used to, cutting your plates in half, whatever. Self-monitoring, you could do this either with a tracking app um, or weighing yourself every day, regular exercise, which, you know, you have good habits every day after work, you go work out, structured programs help, um, and even social, you know, being in a social group helps. Ability to focus on long-term goals helps. Somebody's always thinking about two years from now, not just tomorrow or that wedding that's coming up. There are ways to break through prep plateaus. You can take a diet break like we talked about or those refeeds or reduce your calories slightly, add in a little bit more activity, lower the carbs, not protein by five maybe 10 or 15 percent a day increase your activity by five 10 maybe 15 percent a day um, might not make a huge difference but every little bit helps and this is relative to your current activity level uh, obviously you don't want to lower protein though the problem with us is a lot of us life revolves around food the second we get to work we're like what are we doing for lunch funerals weddings whether you're happy depressed or whatever um, this is a huge problem you i always tell people eat to live don't live to eat eat food to fuel yourself and fuel your fun or your activity or your day. Don't go out, you know, living your life to find food and eat and enjoy food. The goals of a perfect diet, obviously you want something cheap or free, something you can maintain. It's good for your health, easy to follow, doesn't require a master's degree, sustainable long-term, doesn't rely on fads or trends, no outrageous promises, is evidence-based, kind of like all the research we just went through, and something that promotes a healthy relationship with food. I don't like to tell my patients, well, this is a good food or this is a bad food. You got to avoid pizza no matter what or ice cream. No, you can eat it and enjoy it. It's more calorie dense than other stuff. But you can have it just in in smaller amounts. Just track it and eat it. You don't want to get feed into this terrible um, relationship with food and terrible relationship with exercise for that matter. And something that's not restrictive. You don't want to restrict people's ability to eat things like, like pizza's off limits or carbohydrates are off limits or fat is off limits. You don't want to be too restrictive either. So back to the diet. How do you calculate your maintenance calorie or deficit calorie? So maintenance for most people, if you take your body weight and multiply it by 12 to 14. So if you weigh 200 pounds, that's like 2,400, maybe 2,800 calories a day. A deficit for most people is their weight times 10. So if you weigh 200 pounds, usually 2,000 calories is a deficit for you. Now for women or people who are older, if you're over the, older than 40, you might want to lower those numbers, like multiply by just 10 to 12 for maintenance or multiply by eight or nine for a deficit 
Um, also for females or smaller individuals, same thing. But you could just start at 10, multiply by 10, try the deficit, go four to six weeks. If it works and weight's coming off, leave it. The higher, the better. You want to stay high. The other thing is you want to get about 0.7 to 1.2, maybe even 1.5 grams of protein per pound. So that's 140. If you're using the same 200-pound person, that's about 140 grams of protein, maybe up to 240 grams. But it's usually per pound of lean body mass. So if you're 240 pounds and overweight by about 50 pounds, subtract 50 from that, and it's really 190. So you can eat about 140 to 180 grams of protein a day. And the rest can be any combination of carbs and fat. Energetics of obesity and weight control. Does diet composition matter? Just one last time in case you were wondering. Um, this uh, study showed that protein being high helps with satiety and is likely what causes more weight loss on higher protein diets. Um, the greater average weight loss have been reported for low-carbohydrate diets compared with traditional low-fat uh, diets hypocaloric diets implying 233 kilocalories per day greater energy deficit. It has therefore been suggested that a low-carbohydrate diet may provide a metabolic advantage and increase en energy expenditure, resulting in a positive effect on weight loss and maintenance. However, a review of the studies in which 24-hour energy expenditure was measured did not provide evidence to support a metabolic advantage of low-carb diets and showed little evidence of metabolic advantage of high-protein diets. Nonetheless, diets and high-protein, but either low or modest in carbs have resulted in greater weight loss than traditional low-fat diets. We speculate that, that it is the protein and not the carbohydrate content that is important in promoting short-term weight loss, and that this effect is likely due to increased satiety caused by increased dietary protein. It has been suggested that the increased satiety might help persons to be more compliant with a hypocaloric diet and achieve greater weight loss. The current evidence combined with the need to meet all nutrient requirements suggests that hypocaloric weight loss diets should be moderate in carbohydrates, 35 to 50% of energy, moderate in fat, 25 to 35% of energy, and protein should contribute 25 to 30% of energy intake. More studies of the efficacy of weight loss and weight maintenance diets that address protein content are needed. In addition, controlled studies of total energy expenditure or physical activity measured under free living conditions that directly compare high-protein diets with those containing low and moderate carbohydrates should also be performed. Now, the one thing we know in the uh, weight loss community and obesity medicine community is that protein helps you retain lean body mass. So when these people are restricting their calories, if they're in the high protein diet group, they're not losing muscle and muscle is more metabolically active than fat. So your BMR and your total daily energy expenditure stays up. That's another explanation as to why this matters. So the other question is, do calories out matter? First of all, these are like your exercise. It's very difficult to change this and you can go look at the exercise lecture if you want to find out why, but it's very difficult to change your exercise or your calories out. Um, don't eat back calories that you burn off. If your watch tells you you burned off 350 calories, don't go eat an extra 350 calories that day. Calories and exercise should be independent. Your calorie deficit should be your calorie deficit regardless of how much activity you do or don't do. If you do activity, then that's a bonus. If you don't do anything that day, then you should still lose weight. We really don't know how much we are burning off and it is usually capped. If you go to the exercise lecture, you will find out why. So if you're not losing weight, start weighing everything in grams and track it. Um, the diet after the diet is also important now that you've lost so much weight. If you used to be 250 
Uh, if you used to be 300 pounds and needed three to 4,000 calories a day to maintain your body weight, now your BMR is a lot lower and you're going to need a lot less calories to maintain your BMR. Take that new 200 pounds and multiply it by 12-ish or 14. Um, there is also a phase called reverse diet where you slowly increase your calories over time and minimize fat gain. Um, this will increase your BMR. Uh, but do it slowly. When you're done getting lean and getting to the weight you want, if you're on 1,800 calories a day, add in about 100, maybe 150 a week for like the next two or three months and look in the mirror and see if you're gaining fat or not. And then you can kind of lower it back down again. But you don't want to suddenly start going back to three or 4,000 calories a day. That 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 yo-yo dieting uh, graphics that we showed, you will gain a lot of fat and become very, very good at gaining fat. And this is just rapid overfeeding versus refer dieting, refeed, reverse dieting. The blue line is the caloric intake you see, and the yellow line, the yellow dotted line is the body fat. You see that somebody, and the gray line is the total daily energy expenditure. So you see somebody dieted down, their body fat percentage went down, their total daily energy expenditure went down, and then they suddenly take a huge amount of calories, boom, their body fat goes up and their total daily energy expenditure goes up. If you do it in a stepwise fashion, whether it's on the way down or up, but especially on the way back up, you slowly increase calories, which is what this person did. They did it gradually. The total daily energy expenditure has time to catch up. Your BMR goes up slowly in a stepwise fashion, and your fat level doesn't go up as high. It just slowly goes up. So don't uh, suddenly start eating a ton. There's lots of resources. This is my favorite macro calculator. It's the one on Macros Inc. They have a Facebook page. It's also a great resource. My favorite fat loss book, if I had to pick just one, and I've read every single one of them, is Dr. Lane Norton's book. Um, can't say enough about this. Here's a graphic showing the, the, you know, the golden pyramid of fat loss. At the bottom is the most important, which is your calorie deficit. Second most important is to have a lot of protein. Lift some weight so you can retain some uh, muscle and even grow muscle in the beginning. Um, sleep seven to nine hours a night and then a little bit of cardio here and there. It's definitely not necessary for weight loss, but it's good for your heart. And as a cardiologist, I'm always going to tell you to at least do that. Um, this is the fat loss fundamentals. Number one is non-negotiable is a calorie deficit. Highly advisable. Making your plan as easy as to stick to. So if you like keto, you like intermittent fasting, you like whatever you want definitely pick something you can stick to. Consume enough protein, resistance train, keep active, prioritize nutritious food, adequate sleep, kind of all the stuff we've been talking about. Stuff that most people don't need to worry about is what is the best diet, how many meals do you eat, your carb to fat ratio, calorie cycling, whether your cardio is fasted or not, what time of the day you eat, what you consume after your workout, what time you train, and all that stuff. Um, this is the stuff that most people focus on and are obsessed with, and none of this stuff really matters. The stuff that you can just throw out the doors is just garbage, unnecessary food avoidance, like, oh, I'm never going to eat pizza again, or ice cream, or whatever it is. Um, cheat meals, oh man, I'm, I'm going to have a cheat meal tonight, I'm, I'm hitting the bar, like, okay. Uh, juice cleanses, weight loss tea bags, self-proclaimed quick fixes, and other false promises. This is a quick Picture, if you need 1,800 calories to lose weight and you eat 3,500 each day on the weekend, you are averaging 2,300 a day and you will not lose weight. The key to losing fat and uh, gaining muscle or losing just fat without losing lean body mass, 
um, is to do diet plus weights, which is like the guy on the right here. Your body fat level goes down, muscle mass goes up or stays the same. You don't lose any. The guy on the other side did a lot of cardio and some diet. He looks frail and thin, which we, sometimes we call that skinny fat. He lost body fat as well as muscle mass. Don't worry if the scale is bouncing up and down. We want to lose fat, which is the green line. If you're in a calorie deficit, you will lose fat, even though the scale bounces up and down every day. This is more so for women, uh, too, because there's lots of hormones at play. If you eat a little more salt or soy sauce or sushi or chips one day, you're going to retain water and it's going to go up. You have a little more carbs, you're going to store some glycogen. It's going to go up. If you worked out really heavy one day, you're going to store muscle water in your muscles and it's going to go up. So don't worry about it. If you are in an actual calorie deficit, your fat is coming off. Baby boomers looking at their kids. The reason kids are obese is not genetic. It's because they inherited your eating habits. Um, and it's the same thing. Here they are playing video games and they don't go outside and play. This is how you can find me once again, or on YouTube, obviously. These are my cute kids. And leave questions below. Uh, tap the notification button and subscribe and tell all your friends about this channel. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Hopefully this clarified a lot of issues about diets.